Okay, let's start. Um, I always like to start my interviews with what I call the basics. Um, so for the record, who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is uh, Oliver Nicholas Orham. I'm principal founder at Chain Pine and I'm the CEO there. Could you give us a quick summary of a company, how you decided to start it, what sure. sectors are you in, what you do, and kind of how it evolved prior to COVID-19? So Chainvine, uh, the original concept around Chainvine was to use distributed ledger um, to take out um, fraudulent, uh, fraudulent certification in fine wine. Um, we kind of chose fine wine because of it was an investment asset, but also a retail good. And what we were trying to show was the use of blockchain in both uh, the financial tech world and also in the supply chain world. And the most basic principle concept of Chainvine was we believe that digital um, documents and digital certification is far more stronger and um, trustworthy than any type of paper certification. Um, we started off with wine, but we really were more of a, like a commodities type of platform. So the idea was to move any good around in the world and take away all of the paper around it. And that was by basically managing the identity of the owner or the identity of the product, the product itself and the security around the product. So all of that data that came around the product we were managing. And, and to sum it up how it's grown and I'll, keep, I'll stick to the wine, even though we're in quite a few different sectors, but the wine sort of sums up our journey quite well. So from the um, certification around wine, we added IoT technology into distributed ledger. So what mm -hmm. we were able to do was create intelligent wine. Now you might ask- what <laughs> Nice. Is. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 unfortunately, Isn't it like press itself? Yeah, it, and um, you, you actually gain, no, no, you don't gain any uh, uh, extra insight when you drink it. Well, you might do, depending on how much. But, ah, ha, ha. but essentially, um, what we were doing was saying, like, with this technology, we can move around a commodity anywhere in the world, and the commodity itself can begin to self-report where it is, who it's with, how it's feeling, and how much it's worth. So truly an intelligent commodity in the fact that as it moves around the world, it's gaining intelligence and the intelligence is updated in near real time to you. So, all, all, uh, and all of this is without any paper, you're managing a thin stream of data across borders, time zones and such. So were you a big wine lover? Is that, was that the inspiration or you yeah, had so the idea for a company and you were like, oh, I will apply this to wine. So I was inspired by um, Rudy Canaravan. I don't know if you've ever seen the Netflix documentary, Sour Grapes. No. I'm sorry. You, you've got to watch it now, now that you're in lockdown. Um, so Rudy Canaravan was the world's biggest wine fraudster for about 10 years. He sold lots of fake wine up to $15 million worth in one year. And he mainly sold it actually to a lot of people in Silicon Valley in California. Um, and he did that because he was a master at um, um, counterfeit um, paper documents, which essentially he stuck on the bottles, which are labels. And the reason he got caught was because of Charles Ponsert, uh, a French vineyard owner, came to a, um, an auction in New York and, and they were selling some of his wine. And um, they were selling a 1960, I can't remember the years exactly, but 1964 or 1973, I think two different years. And he basically said, that's impossible. You can't be selling those wines in those years. And they said, well, why is that? And he said, well, I didn't start making wine until 1980. Wow. But the whole problem evolved from a, a really broken supply chain and not knowing where to check your good or product. So when we looked at this, we thought this is applicable right across enterprise. 
there's a problem in um, business and enterprise and government. And um, it's, it's not about replacing trust. I don't, I don't go with that blockchain thing will replace trust, but I will, I do believe it can reduce the cost of trust and thereby reduce the cost of doing business and increase business margins. So I think the technology is actually highly suitable for the digitization of SMEs in the future. And that, that's sort of about the company where it started. We worked in the legal sector, commodities sector, wine sector. Um, I've got a co-founder with me, um, Dr. Rajiv Mafur, and um, he actually used to teach distributed systems at um, Strathclyde University and Imperial. He comes from a research background, um, extremely clever. Um, he's worked with a lot of the high street banks on digital forensics and fraud. So we were able to take the vision and, and build because if we melded together a very good team in many ways, you know, so there was a meeting of minds. And really that's come to today where we're participating in, in projects that will change the um, face of um, basically the digitization of trade across borders. And there's never been a more pressing time for this type of technology. That's true. I'm sure that's going to become increasingly uh, important as we deal with the fallout of Brexit. Or yeah. Um, so moving on now to life in your company post-COVID. Um, how has life at your company changed since the COVID-19 virus and lockdown? What was the biggest adjustment to moving to remote? Did you already have a remote plan? Were you yeah. all office-based? What was kind of the biggest change? So I've always been remote. In the tradition of a startup, you know, I mean, I was the main person running around and doing the meetings before we raised money and looking to raise money and sort of I think that's the life of the CEO is to be remote um, sometimes in these days because you, you're very much the um, kind of um, flag carrier if you like and and you're you, you know you're you're an ambassador um, so you're always kind of on the move so I, I'm used to working anywhere you know just give me an internet um, <laughs> and I'm good you can stick me pretty much anywhere um, and don't uh, you can challenge me to that one day um, <laughs> see, see how we do and, and, you know, my CTO, you know, we, we, we worked remotely and, and been able to communicate in a successful way for a good few years. Um, I think we're quite a relaxed company in, in the fact that we trust one another to get the job done. And um, because we all have an interest in the company being successful, um, it's working quite well. I think that's the attraction and probably the benefits of a startup in working mm -hmm. remotely. Um, as opposed to a big corporate that's established that has probably to kind of get that discipline in. What has been your number one frustration or worry that you've had about your company since COVID? Well, I mean, we had, um, we, we had secured uh, another funding round and um, it was the, everything was pretty much uh, ready to go. And um, we got interrupted by COVID. Uh, the investment order began, but then the taps got turned off. And right. That wasn't our fault. Um, uh, the money was actually um, there, but it wasn't there, if you know what I mean. So uh, COVID just just completely smashed us in the space of four days. But um, we have always been very pragmatic. So when we saw what was going on in February, we had already began to take measures because we were like, we can't leave anything to chance. Um, mm -hmm. So we take measures now just in case. and. I believe that hindsight um, was extremely um, um, a benefit to us. We have a very good um, team of senior people advising us. And so these guys are veterans um, in the corporate world. And they, they were like, um, I, I said, I guess we better start taking 
some measures here and they were like, you better do it as of yesterday. So okay. very fortunate to have um, a very level-headed, good team around mm -hmm. us. Um, and um, I think, um, to be fair, actually, we've been approached by four different VCs, uh, significant ones, um, during this time because they said, actually, your technology is um, pretty um, significant in, in terms of what's going to happen after COVID and during COVID. So we've even pivoted some tech um, to address COVID uh, solutions. Can you give me some examples of that? Yeah, sure. So you're in America, right? Um, yes. Uh, and um, last time I was in America, I did something really stupid. Well, actually, I haven't even got to America yet. Um, I'm so busy traveling in Europe and pre-Brexit, you know, no borders. And um, I'm on my way to the airport and um, I just realized that I meant to fill in an Esther. Right. Well, six hours before I fly and um, I'm like, oh, dear me, I haven't filled in my Esther form. Um, luckily, um, British Airways were great. And they said, um, you have, don't worry, looks like you've done it online. And I had done it online. It looks like you've got your answer. So you will be going to Las Vegas to speak at Money 2020. No, so I, when I was traveling before, I was in Moscow, London, Paris, before I got back to Stockholm, and I began to see as the cities got, got very, very quiet. Um, and um, I was thinking, you know, I know the focus is on saving lives and, 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 and saving people from this, what is a pretty awful um, virus. Mm -hmm. In my mind was like looking uh, around the corner and going, my God, this is going to have such bad effects on the economy, the airlines, the leisure industry. Could we, even six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, look to begin to create some sort of COVID passport? And everyone's calling it COVID passport now, but actually I named it iEster. <laughs> so I called it like an intelligent Esther, and it was based mm -hmm. on the US Esther system and the Chinese Huku system. The Chinese Huku system was an internal migration visa for workers being able to work in different sectors and regions. So the app was based on the two... Um, forms or, or uh, you need the Esther to get into America and you need the Huku to internally migrate within China to work in different provinces. Um, my idea was to um, let people manage digital documents where they had either been tested positive or negative uh, for COVID and they were no longer a threat to pass it on and get these people back into the mainstream working and traveling. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is actually to give these people a unique um, way of identifying their documents around their um, tests and medicine. So there's a big thing about privacy in that, and I agree with that. I believe that many individuals manage their own tax and medical records anyway. So let them manage their um, COVID um, test results as well. And, and a bit like if you go into California and you take orange and fruit, and you shouldn't, you're going to get fined a lot and stuck in prison in some cases. Now that, that should be applicable to people that are traveling dishonestly who know they're sick. Um, I'm afraid because if this happens, and, and I believe that in the global world we live in, things are gonna change. If you are feeling sick, perhaps the general rule may be like, please stay home and don't infect people. Right. Which kind of makes sense, really. I mean, I, mm -hmm. generally speaking, when I've got a cold, I, the worst thing I would like to do is go to a meeting and infect someone because they're not going to remember you for the great technology you got, but they will remember you for giving the most rotten cold they've ever had. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of common sense in a way, but it's got more serious now in the fact that, you know, this is an extremely um, pervasive and um, nasty um, virus. But at the same time, 
you know, the consequences of an economic fallout could be just as bad at the moment. Um, and the repercussions for society could be just as terrible, in my opinion. So I think there's a balance now where the governments have to find ways of getting back people into the, the working stream if they can and traveling, because if this right. is part of global trade. Right. Wow, that's a lot to think about. Speaking of governments, you yourself were on the brink of another round. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, recently just got basically turned off because of COVID. Um, and with the huge announcement yesterday of the two different funds from the government, um, what, do you, what do you think about that? How do, what do you think about the program? I think it sends a really good message out, first of all. It's very positive that the government recognizes, as most countries do, that their intangible assets are extremely important. And by intangible assets, I mean their tech startups, their tech um, ecosystem. Um, these things that aren't measurable in bricks and mortar are, are kind of critical to the West and um, any, any country of the future because of um, you know, everything we do now. If you look at ev how everyone is responding to the pandemic, everyone's online, everyone's um, doing meetings like we are now. And this is all driven by tech um, communications and infrastructure. And what the tech companies of London are doing and the wider UK and Europe are basically building the infrastructure and the tech solutions of tomorrow. To turn that tap off and not give those companies any hope would be a great disservice, um, not just to those companies, but to, to what they will do for our economies in the future. I, I can't really, um, I, I, I have a vested interest, obviously I run a tech company, but the reason I got into running a tech company and took the risk in the first place was because I saw the huge potential for technology in our future um, life cycle and, 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 and the enabling um, possibilities that it does in our everyday lives and jobs. What role do you feel that the private sector and the tech and startup scene have in the resilience of a city and it's able to help that city <clears throat> respond to crisis like this. Okay, that's, so do you mean from a trade or um, financial perspective? A financial perspective. Well, I mean, if you look at the City of London, um, City of London is basically built on mercantile law. And mercantile law, this is, I suppose this is the reason why you get so many um, law companies um, in the UK, because of Brexit or not, um, and I, I don't really want to get into Brexit on this one, but- um, Right, of course. Uh, you, you have to understand that London has this huge pool because of its legal system. Now, the legal mm -hmm. system is based on its ability to uh, dispense mercantile law in many ways and commercial law. Now, all of these things, law, finance, the changing um, and, and meshing into the technology world. So if a city can't keep up with its technology, none of its old industry, um, be that legal or financial, will be able to help it. Um, it needs to have a balance now with the technology and the old city incumbent um, legal needs to be working hand in hand with tech. And many of them are. Many of them are using AI. Many of them are using machine learning and, um, and distributed ledger. So for London to remain um, uh, in the pole position, if you like, uh, in financial terms, and New York and um, Hong Kong, mm -hmm. all of these global hubs of finance need to embrace technology. And you can see they are, um, but it's vital that they keep that, that engagement on. What do you think COVID means for the future of work? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think, um, personally, I, I think 
you're going to see a more flexible approach to working from home. I, I think a lot more employers will be, you know what, um, if we look at the, the fine figures here um, and, and if you want to work home and you do your job at home, there's no reason why you shouldn't do your work at home. I don't think everyone's going to end up working from home forever um, because we're social animals at the end of the day. And right. it's an important part of uh, work life to, to be able to um, socialize and, and uh, blow off steam, uh, whether that, whatever way you do it. And, um, and um, your work colleagues and associates are, are just as important part of your life for some people as their families. Um, in, in some cases, for some people, that's all they have. So I think you've got to think about a lot of people who are families probably thinking, you know, this isn't bad working from home. On the other hand, you've got people who, who live alone, who probably most of their social interaction was at work. So there's a balance to be had there, I believe. Those are all really good points to think about. Okay, so we're moving into what I think is the most fun part of the interview. I call it life and lockdown. You ready? Yep. Okay. So what has your daily routine looked like since lockdown? Um, I get up and I walk or cycle. Uh, then I, I, I drink another pot of strong Swedish coffee um, and, and buzz around the rooms a bit. Um, call, up my, <laughs> call up my CTO and annoy him. <laughs> say what's going on where have you been and he'll be like Oliver I'm in stricter lockdown than you please stop um, <laughs> and then we we kind of discussed pretty much what we're both going to do that day. look at mm -hmm. look at what things we're going to do um, discuss the situation and then agree that we'll catch up at the end of the day and um, you know recheck in and uh, just really to talk, see how the other team members are doing uh, and stuff like that, really, just to see where the projects are and, and what's going on. Um, do you have a quarantine series binge that you've been attracted to since lockdown, something on Netflix or Hulu or a podcast? Or I was watching um, Devs on HBO Nordic. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. My, 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 um, my better half, she was like, you're not buying one of those shirts. <laughs> <laughs> And cut your beard off immediately. Um, right. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite quarantine snack? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, ribs. Um, Do you know what? Because I've been stuck in working, mm -hmm. I, I, I never made slow-cooked slow like American-style ribs, ever. Wow. And in the last month, I've done it like three Fridays in a row. Um, wow. That's, yeah, that's, a, really that's some high living right there. Ribs every Friday. Five Friday. hours. Five hours cooked and then using a Baby Ray's barbecue sauce. You use Baby Ray's. Uh, yeah. You know, good ribs are like good barbecues, all about the dry rub. Okay, just, dry rub. Just a, yeah, just a tip from a, a native southerner. So. Right, you send me a recipe, please. That will be I my, will. Next, my next task, and I will date Tech Dot on that one. <laughs> nice. I'm looking forward to it. What is the one thing that has kept you sane? I think, you know, Actually, being in a startup um, in the first years, you can lose your sanity. And, and, and um, I, I suspect for many entrepreneurs and startups, COVID has thrown another challenge at us. Mm -hmm. um, for some of us in a very unfair way, uh, those that are probably at very um, low seating levels and where the government fund might not be applicable to them. Um, but I think most entrepreneurs are, are quite built for this kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think they're used to the the um, 
there is a certain degree of loneliness in, in, in starting a company in the fact that you, you kind of have an idea and you're up against it and um, you have to convince more and more people around you to, to accept and believe in your vision and that it will work. So I, I think, yeah, I, I, I can't really, I kind of felt prepared in, in some ways for it. Right. If that makes sense. Um, <laughs> Just the, the life of what, what I think you're saying is that the life of a startup innately appear, uh, prepares you to be quick to, to pivot and be quick to react and to handle pressure. And Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's, um, there's so much in the early days of a startup where you're really out there. And um, sometimes you're just like, you know, this is, this is, this is, the task is so huge. So I, I think it's just getting through to the other side of COVID, which is the daily battle plan. Right. Is there something you have time to do now that you haven't before, besides making ribs? <laughs> um, um, I, 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 did, um, I expect it's the exercise. Um, I used to exercise a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But then with the traveling, I stopped. And now I've really, um, I'm exercising like four or five times a week and I, it feels good. Um, so that's something I'm very happy about that I've turned a kind of bit of a negative, um, uh, thing into a positive outlook with, um, working out every day. And I think I did 20 kilometers this morning on the bike, which was pretty good. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, going into my last couple of questions, what do you think your company's COVID story will be? I think unity, um, um, pulling through and we look back on it and, um, just, uh, we look at the way we pivoted, I, I believe. I think the way that uh, um, the, the core team um, rode through this, I think um, it's, it's shown us a lot. Mm -hmm. So unity, I'd say unity. What is the one piece of advice that you have to the tech community right now, especially for startups that might feel under pressure or struggling? I, I just, you know, you just got to take a deep breath and, and just look look to whatever optimism you can and um, you know, nothing is for certain anyway. And um, anyone who, who starts a tech startup knows that um, it's an extremely hard, um, it's extremely hard business and COVID um, look at COVID as an opportunity, not a, not a um, disabler of um, what you're doing. Just work out how your tech is, is relevant in this time. Okay. Thank you so much, Oliver. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Have a good one. Cheers.